I was, I was thinking about all of the dynamics that go into God stirring up a human heart. All of the dynamics that, that have to happen for God to change a person's opinions, to change a person's preferences, to change a person's ideas and, and their priorities. All of the things that you and I get frustrated when we deal with other people because these are all the areas that we have conflict And yet God in his sovereignty is the one who's got his hand on the controls. We talked about that big tractor last week and how powerful it is. But the one who really has the power is the one who's in the driver's seat. And and we talked about how God is in control. And that challenged me to remember and to, to rest in this great God who is in control. The week before that, we looked back into the history of Israel to see why did they find themselves in Babylon in the first place. We saw that God revealed through Moses that if they rejected him and followed other gods, he would remove them from this land that he had just caused them to enter. We saw how the kingdom split after Solomon and how the children of Israel actually did reject God as their king and they went to follow other gods. And then we saw how God fulfilled his prophecy, how God fulfilled his command His promises are true and his curses are just as true. And so the reason they're in uh, Babylon right now is because they've walked contrary to his word. We looked at how even though the children of Israel are now kingless, they are by no means godless. And the story of Ezra is a story of a people with a God. And that's encouraging to us. We looked at several reasons why we need the book of Ezra. And I hope that as we move through this book, we will get what we need from him. And today is no different. I hope that we are are helped with this passage. The week before that, the first week, we looked at three themes that stood out to me as I prepared this series. We looked at the truth that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. And we saw how... Everything about this book will serve as a reminder that God's word is true and always comes true. The book of Ezra is a book of faith. Uh, It's a book of trusting this great God. It's a book that reveals to us that God's hand is on his people. We saw also that human words aren't even a footnote in the story. It's God's word that matters. Everything in this book will show us that no matter what humans say, no matter what humans write, it's God's word that always succeed. And the application for that was that we are justified by faith. We must trust God's word. We must listen to it. We must hang all of our hopes on God's promises that are fixed somewhere other than this world. Well, this week I want to focus on the content and structure of the book and this chapter and sort of bring us into the book of Ezra proper where we'll, we'll continue to go for the next several weeks. There's three things that I want to point out. The first two are, are just going to be simply um, maybe just logistics so that we can know what we're reading when we read the book of, of Ezra. I want to talk about the historic significance of the book of Ezra. And I want to talk about why this is important. As we read this ancient book, and this book is is about 2,500 years old. What does a book that is 2,500 years old 
mean to you and I? Why are we even thinking about it here in the middle of the most prosperous, the most technically advanced nation in the history of the world? Why are we reading the book of Ezra? I've said it a number of times before, and I'll keep saying it. These kinds of things make the Bible personal to you and I. It's not some kind of work of fiction. This book deals in real people. It deals with real circumstances. It deals with real schedules. It deals with real tragedies and real deliverances. This is God's word for his people that he gave us because you and I are real. And you and I deal with real situations and circumstances. You and I are going to get up tomorrow and follow our real schedule. And so the book here, as we see it, is very significant for you and I. Because it deals with real life. This book is is a book of truth and it's a book of fact. One of the things that stood out to me ever since I started the book was that reading commentaries, there are even times in the commentary where the, the, the guy says, this happened on this specific day in this specific year. Wow, that really shocked me. We are getting so close in the history of humanity that now they're able to even put specific dates. Like specific dates. A lot of it, yeah, it's, it's, it was in this year or this year or this year. But we're getting so close to history that they're even able to go back and say it happened on this date. It happened this morning. Think about that. We're connected to this book by our calendar now. If our phones went back 2,500 years, we would be scrolling forever, but we could scroll back on our actual calendar and show up on this specific day. And the Bible reveals to us the closure, the connection of that reality. There's a, there's a real interesting kind of precision. Now, I know it's a long way away. I mean, I can't even remember what I did last Tuesday. So it's hard for me to have a point of reference. But for you and I to read a book that is starting to give us precision in this way, it ought to pique our interest. Maybe there's more to it. Maybe you and I can grow in that way. There's a number of dates of Ezra. It happens in the time period of 538 B.C. all the way up until about 450 B.C. The first verse, it says, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Well, we can look at extant history, other history, Babylonian history, Persian history, that we could go if we were of the means and grab something that would tell us this is when this happened. And we know that it happened right around 538 B.C., The first wave of the returnees, they arrive in Jerusalem in 537 B.C. There's not going to be a test. I I just want to read through these these dates so that you can sort of have a... Remember, we're 2020 A.D. That's where we are. So we're talking about 2,500 years or so. The rebuilding of the temple begins in about 536 B.C. The temple work ceases in 530 to 520 B.C. The ministry of the prophet Haggai, this is one of those examples. Listen to this. They have pinpointed that the ministry of the prophet Haggai happened 
starting in August 29th and going through December 18th in the year 520 B.C. I don't know about you, but that's really interesting to me. I mean, I always say stuff like this where the reason we have these kind of things in the Bible is so that you and I could be connected in a way that's historic, right? That we could look back and see that we're actual people with actual names. But here, even in this sense, Haggai, that we can read his book in the Bible, this is when his book was written, specifically August 29th, is when he sat down with a, with a stylus in his parchment or however he did it, and he wrote on August 29th, he began to write his four messages. This is a really helpful thing for me. The temple work begins as a result of Haggai and Zechariah's ministry, and it was completed in 516 B.C. And Ezra departs from Babylon to Jerusalem in 458 B.C. And when we talk about dates like this, I hope everybody hasn't glazed over because I want you to think about this. When we talk about dates like this, I begin to think about the B.C., the B.C., and it gives me a bit of excitement. We know that B.C. stands for before Christ. Before Christ. And in this chapter, we can see that we are a mere 450 years before Christ Jesus comes to fulfill the plan of the Trinity. We are close, church. The book of Ezra is close. It's one of the closest. It is one of the closest historic books in the Bible, to the gospel ministry of Jesus Christ from the Old Testament. B.C. is right there. I read it time and time again. 538 B.C., 537 B.C., 536 B.C., 530 B.C., 520 B.C., 516 B.C., before Christ, before Christ. This is exciting. This is very exciting. Everything we could ever learn about the dates of anything. Listen to this. Everything that we could ever learn about the dates of anything is to be understood in, the, in reference to Jesus Christ. Think about that. He stands at the center of human history. Even today's date, even saying today's date, September 13th, 2020 AD, in the year of our Lord, His name is found on every single day of history. This is historically significant for you and I. When we read it, we can see these times that it was in this year that Cyrus did this, that he wrote this, that the people responded. The second thing in your notes, by way of just logistics, is going to be the structure or the arrangement of this book. The structure and the arrangement of this book. Why is it called Ezra? Who wrote it and so on? Well, Ezra wrote it. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the book of Ezra and the book of Nehemiah were one book. They were called Ezra. And so the history of Ezra and the history of Nehemiah were together. But in this book, we will see that he was a priest. It says that he was a scribe who was skilled in the law of Moses. And his skill in the law of Moses will serve him well. Ezra is chronologically the last historic book in the Hebrew Bible. Ezra and Nehemiah. You have Genesis, you have Exodus. Those tell historic things that happened way, way back. You have books like um, Ruth, 
Judges, Joshua, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. These are all historic books. You have Daniel, which is the first half of that is historic. You have um, also um, Esther, which is a historic book. You have have this kind of stuff. This is the last one in the history of of the recorded history of the Hebrew people before the Gospels. The first six chapters of the book, Ezra's not involved in. So as we read it, Ezra's not going to be involved. In those, this is his record of history. He reported this. And then the second half, or the next, the last four chapters, record how Ezra was involved. And so as we read it, we're going to see the period of time, about a hundred years that pass through the history of this book. In this book, we will be reading some lists of names and places. And so I want to, as we go there, I want to give you some direction and guidance for how do we read these kind of things and gain anything from them. The last thing, and and this is going to be my preaching point for the day, is going to be the vessels. The vessels that we see in verses 5 through 11. So in your Bibles, open up the book of Ezra to chapter 1. And as I read, I want you to think about these vessels because they're very important. It says in verse 5, Then rose up the heads of the fathers' houses of Judah and Benjamin, and the priests and the Levites, everyone whose spirit God had stirred up to go to rebuild the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem. Verse, five, or verse 6 says, And all who were, about, who were about them aided them with vessels of silver, with gold, with goods, with beasts, with costly, costly wares, besides all that was freely offered. Cyrus, the king, also brought out the vessels of the house of the Lord that Nebuchadnezzar had carried away from Jerusalem and placed in the house of his gods. Cyrus, king of Persia, brought these out in the charge of Mithridath, the treasurer, who counted them out to Sheshbazar, the prince of Judah. And this was the number of them, 30 basins of gold, 1,000 basins of silver, 29 censers, 30 bowls of gold, 410 bowls of silver, and 1,000 other vessels. All the vessels of gold and silver were of 5,400. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from, the Babylon, from Babylonia to Jerusalem. This morning as we think about these vessels, it's important I... I uh, I don't have my bulletin in front of me. What, what, did I, what was my final title for the message, Katie? The importance of dishes. That's right. The importance of dishes. Why is this list in here? What, are, what is important about these dishes? Why does God spend so much time in this first chapter talking about pots and pans? What is their significance? Well, I have three things here that that we need to think about as we read this. First of all, they have purpose. These dishes aren't something that they found on clearance at Bed Bath & Beyond. You know, this isn't just like arts and crafts that their children had made at at VBS and and painted and sealed and brought home to be hung up on, on the mantle or whatever. These vessels were important. They were created... They were cataloged to be used by the Israelites to worship the Lord God in the tabernacle and in the temple. We first are introduced to these in the book of Exodus. As God is establishing his tabernacle and giving his people a way to properly worship him, one of the things that he did was he gave this very intricate plan and structure of worship. And it included some of these very pans, some of these very vessels, some of these very dishes. 
Some of them were used to carry or to hold the incense that God commanded to be burned in the tabernacle and in the temple. This incense sometimes represented the prayers of his people that were to be perpetually lifted up for his glory and for their faith. That when they would walk into the tabernacle way back in the book of Exodus, way back in the book of Numbers, they would see some of these vessels that had piled on these spices and and herbs and so on that they would light on fire. They would put a coal in and it would just sit and smolder. And this essence, this smell would would come up and cover the smell of the, the burning flesh of the sacrifices. And it was a picture of of God's people praying and and God's presence filling up the tabernacle. That's what some of these vessels were for. It was also used to mask the terrible smell of the burning flesh day after day. It represented in some way the reality that God brings joy out of death. That when the priests would carry these vessels, they would be communicating to the people, this is how God works. This is what God looks like. Some of these basins would have been used for the washing of the meat and the preparation of the priests for the sacrifices. Some of these very vessels, some of these very dishes, these basins of gold and silver would have been actually given to some of the priests as they did their ministry in the temple. So that they could go around and wash things off, which would picture the cleansing and, and, and the, the reality that they need somebody else to help them to be purified. These vessels, these dishes, they communicate. That was their purpose. Others would have been used for the actual celebration of the meals at feast time. Some of these vessels that had been brought would have been some of the same vessels that the priests had taken the food and and went around and served people. A picture of God providing from the land. The picture of the Passover being actually applied and people taking in His provision. These vessels would have had this purpose. Some of these vessels would have been used to carry the precious blood of the sacrifice. When dad would bring the the lamb in to the priests and they would take and cut the throat of this lamb and, and shed his blood, one of these vessels would have caught that blood. And they would have used that to, to bring peace between them and God, to bring forgiveness These vessels had a purpose. This is extremely significant to the message of God's gracious forgiveness and justice. Even now in the book of Exodus, we can see the connection between this truth. Without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sins. And so it's important to notice that God is bringing the people back in to the worship that he has established. These vessels had a purpose. It's not like they're just here to, to, to put into their pantry or whatever and show off. These mean something. And so it's significant that God has, has given them this opportunity. The second thing about these vessels is they have significance. They were golden vessels. They were silver vessels. They were precious things. They were each made to the exact specification that God had commanded to Moses. These weren't just a haphazard group of of vessels that had been collected over the years because somebody wanted this kind and somebody wanted that kind. They were specific. They were very significant. They would have been beautiful. They would have been precious to behold. 
All of them pointing to the magnificence and to the grandeur of the one whose exaltation was their purpose. These vessels were there for God's glory. They each served a purpose and they each played a part in the life that God had given to these Israelites. These are important things. And each one of them have a part in God's message. The third thing, they each have a part in God's message. All of these vessels, all 5,400 of these vessels serve as a witness of God's sovereign superintendence and his faithfulness. I want you to think about that. This is 500 B.C., 500 B.C. These vessels had been made 1,500 years earlier. God had established them to be used in this specific way so that if people wanted to be saved, if they wanted to be forgiven and delivered, they must use these, vis- these vessels the way God had intended. This possibly could have contained the vessel that Aaron's sons used to present strange fire before the Lord for which they were put to death immediately by God. These vessels play a part in God's message. He will be worshipped this way. 300 years before the book of Ezra, Isaiah foretold that Israel would return to the land carrying these vessels. So they are a part of God's message. And this morning, we need to think about this. God cares about these kinds of things. God cares about these kinds of things. In 2 Chronicles, if we just turn a couple pages over to the book before, in chapter 37, verse 7, this is where Nebuchadnezzar carries them off to Babylon. He takes these vessels and and brings them into Babylon. And now they're there. And in the book of Ezra, we see God keeping his promise and sending them back to be used for their purpose. These vessels hold their history. These vessels have God's message to those in Ezra. When they gather their vessels, it is as if God is keeping his promise at that time. Wow. Can you imagine the glorious day? Church, as we look at this, there's 5,400 Pieces of evidence. Pieces of God's story. Passed between these 42, 44,000 people that are getting ready to head back to Jerusalem. Each one of them holding a piece of God's history in their hand. And when they see it, they would be thinking about this. They would be thinking about what a God who is keeping his promises. Here, you and I are playing a part in his story. These vessels mean something. They point to something. And now these Israelites have them in their hand. They are a part of God's story. Isaiah talked about it. Jeremiah talked about it. And now they are a part of God's story. Imagine the excitement to see that God is continuing to do what he's promised to do. These vessels started thousands of years earlier and now they're holding them in their hand recognizing that even though their life is short they are a part of God's bigger picture imagine the excitement and the wonder as the elders explain the history of God's work to their people 
Imagine the, being able to touch and to handle the implements that ushered their nation into the promised land. Imagine the truths about God that they could now see with their eyes and handle with their hands. All kinds of messages pointing to one comprehensive message. God always saves his people. And here in the book of Exodus or Ezra, they are there. All these did Sheshbazar bring up when the exiles were brought up from Babylon. All of them a part of God's history. That's significance. Here in Ezra, we can see God at work once again for the sake of his people. It is so important. It is so important for you and I to recognize that God's message covers thousands of years and millions of people. If I could do anything today to get you excited about this, I would. Because the application is powerful. The application for us today, there's three of them. The first one is this. This, September 13th, 2020 AD, the year of our Lord, is our time It's our time. We're reading about how God worked through his people in their time. But do you realize that you and I are living in our time? Christians, we are the people who are now carrying these vessels, sharing this message with our community. This is our time. We still measure our calendar with the postscript of B.C. before Christ and A.D. or Anno Domini. You and I still use this. This is our time. The historic significance for you and I is we're living in our history. A hundred years from now, people will be looking back and seeing how we live the glory of the gospel. Christ is still the center of our reckoning. Wow. This is our time, church. We have been placed here for such a time as this. This is true in the big picture. But we have to remember as we read the book of Ezra, as we read any of these books... That this big picture is made up of a huge number of tiny little pictures. Minutes, days, weeks, months, years. All of them. All of them included in the reckoning of our Lord. This is our time, church. This is why we were placed here. The significance of those dates find their significance in our dates. We're alive now. We're talking about this. We're pointing to this. The word of the Lord is still coming to us through Jeremiah. Think about that. The book starts in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah is still being fulfilled in you and I. This is our time. This is when we get to live for the Lord. We have rulers We have leaders who are making grand proclamations every single day, but it is still God's word that is firmly fixed in the heavens forever. This is our time. God is still concerned with his worship. 
He is still concerned with how we use his vessels. He is still concerned with how we praise him. He is still concerned with the way the world thinks of him. This is our time, you and I. God is still leading people to set themselves apart so that the world would know that he is sovereign. That's you and I. That's our time. Their response serves as a model for ours. Their time is over. But ours is right here. The historic significance of the book of Ezra and all the rest of the books of the Bible is that this is truth. They walked, they talked, they shared. But you and I, we have the opportunity now. This is our time. Children, I want the children to think or to look at me right now. This is important for you too. Maybe more than it is for us. Right now, you haven't experienced very many years. (laughs) And even those of you who feel like you have, you really haven't. This kind of a study, this kind of a conversation about something that happened so long ago ought to serve to give you perspective. When my kids were younger, I used to pick my phone up when I would be dealing with one of them, specifically Geneva. She's not here to defend herself, but she would admit it. And she would be coming to me and blaming me for something or somebody else for something. And she would be wanting her way. And I would get on Google and I would Google the solar system and I'd show it to her. And I'd say, hey, what do you see right here? And she'd say, well, that's the sun. And I said, well, what are all these things doing? Well, they're revolving around the sun. And I'd say, well, that's not a picture of you, dear. None of this is revolving around you. And that's an important thing for you and I to learn. Children, it's important. Parents, it's important for us to make certain that our children don't think the world revolves around them. That they have a place, an important place, but it is still a place in this world. You children are part of something that is a whole lot bigger than you are. It's a whole lot bigger than your parents are or even your grandparents are. That's important for us today. As we read this, you can trust the God who worked 2,500 years ago. You can trust him today because he never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. Children, you can trust this God. The The second application that I'd have for us today is found in the structure and the arrangement of this book. A couple weeks ago, Rochelle asked a question on Wednesday night about reading the book of Ezra. She said something like this, I know that all scripture is profitable, but how are we supposed to understand these sections? And I thought, wow, that is exactly the way we all need to be thinking. Do you see what she did? She said, I know this. So how am I supposed to think about that? When we read this book and we read the specific history, when we read the structure and how it's arranged, you and I need to be thinking this way. I know this truth. The Bible does say that all Scripture is profitable. And so we need to approach it as if it is profitable. She said, I don't understand it. I know it's profitable, but I don't understand it. How am I supposed to think 
This morning, the application for you and I is that you and I need to be thoughtful and the Bible needs to be the foundation. I might not understand everything about the historical setting of the book of Ezra, but I do need to know that what God says in this book is true and I need to order my life around it. We must let the scripture guide our thinking about everything. Just because we don't understand it doesn't mean we can just dismiss it. We have to think this way. We need to think this way from the easy things to the hard. And when we don't understand them, we need to remain faithful. Our thoughts need to be guided by the word of God. And we see that in the book of Ezra. In the next couple of weeks, we will talk about ways to understand these kinds of difficult passages. But until we understand them, we need to rest on the truth that God's word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Parents, the application for you is this. We must think this way all the time. We must think this way all the time. What I mean by that is, we must think, like Rochelle did, the Bible says this, so how do I think about that? I know the Bible says that every scripture is profitable. How do I do that? You and I need to do this. This needs to be what guides us. I know the Bible tells us to do this. How do we do that? When Paul says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, how do I do that? What does that mean? Our thinking needs to be guided by this truth. What does the Bible say? Now, it doesn't come natural. It doesn't just happen. We need to discipline ourselves to do this. We need to be disciplined so that we can think this way. Husbands, you have to train yourself. Your wife needs you to. Your children need you to. You need to train yourself. You need to get over your priorities and come into the line of the real historic truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Wives, you need to train yourself to think this way. Now, I know that that's not a comfortable thing. And I also know that some people think that when I talk this way, I'm being mean-spirited or, or a bully. But I'm not. This isn't me being a bully. Some of us are dedicated and devoted to our cars or our farms our hobbies, our interests, our sports teams. Some of us have given our lives to these other things. But Jesus says this, what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world but loses his soul? He wasn't being a bully either. He was saying, hey, we have got to think this way. We've got to get our lives right. The word of God must be written on our hearts. That's what the book of Ezra teaches us. It must be written on our hearts, not just our favorite verses. But the message of the Bible needs to be written on our hearts. We must devour it. I can see my time is, is gone. 
I've got one more question that I want to answer. How do we do this then, Steve? How do we do this? Well, as individuals, you and I need to repent. We need to get over ourselves every day. We need to turn from ourselves. We need to deny ourselves. We need to take up our cross and we need to follow Christ. Individually, how do we do this? We get over ourselves and we repent. It's not about Steve being a bully. It's about us making our life right with God. God gave us a wonderful platform for doing this. It's called the church. You want to know how to walk with the Lord? You want to know how to get closer with the Lord? You want to know how you could be someone who thinks after the Lord? You be active in the life of your church. Active in the life of your church. Not just socially, but personally and intimately. There is no way in the world we could eat four times a month and be healthy. But some of us, We don't even eat four times a month of the gospel. We're not connected to the church sometimes even four times a month, much less on Wednesday nights. You want to know how to do this? Be active in your church. I've spent so much time ministering to individuals in our community and in our congregation who are struggling with their walk with the Lord. For three and a half years, I've ministered to people that are struggling with their walk. With their walk. They feel lost. They feel alone. They complain of a lack of faith. They're constantly moaning about an emptiness of spirit. They speak of having little to no desire to grow in his word or to learn. Do you know what the answer for somebody like that is? It's the church. It's being surrounded by God's people who are all intimately seeking God's word and and sharing God's word and encouraging people to rest on God's word. That's what we see in the book of Ezra. As we go through this, we're going to see that God's word is central to the health of his people. If you're struggling today, I want to challenge you. There's a way. The reason Christ placed us in his body was to grow together. To see God at work in each other. No wonder we don't experience life or power. We're not even connected to the body in a healthy way. The other night I woke up and I couldn't move my hand. Have you ever slept on your arm wrong? You wake up, you can't move your hand. It's tingling, it hurts, and you can't do anything with it. You're just fumbling. This is what's going on in so many of our families right now. The circulation has been cut off. We're numb in our spirit. We can't do anything with our hand because it's asleep because we've cut off the circulation. It's not even the really difficult parts of the Bible that are confusing it. It's that none of the Bible is able to make us think because our circulation has been cut off. We're not even taking the Bible in. We're sleeping on our arms and our body isn't working function or working properly. But there's hope. There's hope in the book of Ezra. In the book of Ezra, God is at work in his people, calling them back to himself. And I love what he's given. He's given them the vessels. These vessels that they carry back with them so they can see that God has worked in the past and he will work now. And you and I have vessels. Church, you and I have vessels. The Psalms are our relics. 
The epistles are our relics. The prophets are our relics. The gospels are our relics. We have these that we can look and see how God is at work, what he's done in the past, what he promises to do now. We have it here in front of us. This is the substance of our hope. God's scripture is powerful, immensely important, because they point us to the substance, Christ Jesus. If you're struggling today, if you're struggling today, I want you to hear this. All of the vessels point to one person, Jesus Christ. And when he came to preach this message, he said this, repent and believe. And I want to encourage everybody today, believer and non-believer alike, turn from yourself and trust in Christ. Let's live our life like that. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, work in our souls that we would know you alone. Lord, that we would trust you. Lord, stir up our hearts for your glory's sake. Amen.